Father, we pray through the Lamb of God this morning, our Savior Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author and finisher of our faith. And we praise you in his name and offer these services to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Sit down. <clears throat> Sit down and open your Bibles this morning. Once again to Romans chapter 13. I'll thank Donnie for helping us out this morning. Thank you, Donnie. I've always said if you can't find a good deacon, find a good plumber. It works for us. <laughs> we had a little plumbing problem here this week. Donnie was here, I think, every night this week, not to mention yesterday. So uh, thank you for that, too. All right. Um, Romans 13, chapter 8. Uh, I'm sorry. Romans 13, verse 8. And I'm going to read down to well the end of the chapter, but I'm, I'm going to go one verse into the next chapter for reasons, for reasons that I think you'll, you'll see as we get into this. And so the apostle writes, Oh, no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revel revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. Father, we ask that you would add your presence to this, the reading of your holy word. Amen. So let's turn to the scripture. A little overlap from last week. Well, I'll begin with verse 10, which says, Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Love is not harmful. Love is helpful. Now, we labored quite a bit over this last week over the biblical connection between the law and love. And we must never come to the place where we believe that law and love are somehow mutually exclusive because they go together like a hand in a glove. They are intertwined. Paul gives us a partial list of the commandments. And so he says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. What he's doing is he's giving us a sampling of the law to show us how love works through the law and fulfills it. And he did this that we might see that a man could hardly be said to love his neighbor while at the same time breaking these essential commandments toward his neighbor. How could I say I love you while coveting your stuff or desiring your wife? How could you say you love me if you steal my things and impugn my character? The connection is really quite obvious. At the same time, though, we must not say that not doing harm is the same as loving. Right? There's certain things that love doesn't do. There's certain things that love does. The fact that I have refrained from acting out against you by stealing or lying or coveting or killing 
could hardly in and of itself be called love. I illustrated that last week. I said, Pastor Dan really loves us. He's, he never takes our stuff. He never bears false witness against us. Such a loving guy. It doesn't work. It's not enough there. And something innately in us tells us that that's just not right. You know, does it, do your parents love you because they put food on the table and got you ready for school? <laughs> a little more to it than that. We would never say that a brother loves us simply because he has done us no wrong. No, love has a positive side. We, could, we should say an active side. Love is active. It does things. It accomplishes things. It has a witness. It seems because love links both law and love together that it is also an elusive thing. And that's why Paul gave us chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians to tell us what love does, what it doesn't do, what its character is, what it's like. He knew the ancients didn't really understand it. And so we sort of co-opted the word agape. It really became a biblical word. It's our word. It's a Christian word. Not that it wasn't used in Greece. Obviously it was. But he gave it a new definition with that famous chapter. And he does so partially here as well. So love does not just do great works. It's a great work in and of itself when it's righteously expressed. So why do I say that love is elusive or the connection between law and love is an elusive thing? Well, first of all, because Paul assumed it was, that's why he's teaching the connection between them. It must be taught. We don't just naturally know, or he's not taking for granted that sinners naturally know how to love rightly, right? As I told you, the lexicon says agape is known by the actions that it's prompt, that it prompts rather. In other words, no action, no love, or at least no evidence of it. You know, we'd like to leave behind a little evidence that a Christian's been here and has shed his love on other people. And I would say, as a stipulation to the, to the whole passage, he's not talking particularly about our love toward God. That's really a different issue. He's talking about our love toward one another, that's what the whole passage really emphasizes. And if you remember from last week, the other aspect of love that the apostle depicts is that it is a debt owed. Owe no one anything except to love him. Owe him that much, right? Our lives are forever in the throes of paying it off. He said in verse 8, owe no one anything but to love him. And we noted that Paul's perspective on the, on the whole of the matter of the Christian faith is that our sin debt is paid, but our love debt is never paid. Not in full. And so he said at the beginning of the, of the epistle to the Romans in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians both to wise and to unwise. He speaks in the next verse of paying the debt by preaching the truth. In other words, preaching the gospel of Christ is the ultimate act of love. It's love in action. It's love doing the work of saving another soul. It is loving another soul as you love your own. Fulfillment of the law, you see. How could you say, I love your soul as my own, but I'll leave you in your sin? And that's why Paul speaks of himself as a debtor, both to Greeks and barbarians. And by the way, that's as diverse as they got in that day. That meant everyone. <laughs> it didn't have a lot of alphabet letters to name to make sure they, they had everyone. It was just the two groups, right? So if we haven't done so by now, having come this far in the epistle... Let's do it now. As believers, we really don't think of people as people anymore. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Until you want up it. We think of people as souls, right? And souls are eternal. And souls are precious. And souls don't die, <laughs> right? Souls don't die, friends. That's the danger of being a soul. You know, there's a, 
There's a great heresy called annihilationism. It's held by some of the cults, and that is that in the, in the end, we don't, we don't just we don't die and our, and our souls go somewhere for punishment, right? They just are snuffed out of existence. Sort of like being on that operating table and having the sodium pentothal go through, and you know nothing exists anymore. You, you're done. You're dead to the world. Well, it's not so. Souls live on. Jesus is very adamant about that. Very expressive about that fact. So we think in terms of souls, the eternal human soul, and we are called upon to love and evaluate all souls pretty much equally. And I'll go into the teaching of Christ on this. So love does not distinguish the value of, of souls in the same way we tend to value, value or evaluate people. Right? Love makes no distinction. That's why Jesus could say this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I say to you, love your enemies. Now, friends, that is probably the most basic of Christian teachings, but it is the most sublime in regards to Christian maturity. When you come to a place of loving your enemies, you are surely in a state of spiritual maturity. It is not an easy thing to love someone who hates you, to love someone who persecutes you, to love someone who says all sorts of evil against you falsely for my sake. But if you do, great is your reward in heaven. So bless those. See, love is active. Love blesses. Love your enemies, bless them. Love takes action. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those. Love takes action. It blesses and it prays, even for the enemy, friend. The one who you would so naturally just just hate. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. I would say right in the presence of a person who's speaking evilly of you and is persecuting you, fall to your knees there and pray for his eternal soul right then and there. He makes his sunrise, God makes his sunrise on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Or rather, he makes his sunrise on the evil and the good, makes his sunrise on the just and the unjust. So in other words, God loves this way, so be like God, right? Which he'll say in the end of the passage. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Love isn't trying to break even, friends. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? I'm going to tell you, I have a... I have a belief. I know Christians shun sometimes. I never shun. I just don't think it's a, it's a, it's a Christian virtue to shun someone. You know, there's whole denominations that shun. Um, I don't see how cutting off communications is loving to another soul. But um, do not even tax collectors do that much? You know, the worst people of society, the scum of the earth, those tax collectors? That's what he meant by this, you know. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, you shine your light on the good and on the evil and send your blessing upon the just and the unjust, just as God does. Love is proactive, friends. It blesses, it greets in the marketplace, and it prays. It's plain to to see here that the mature Christian love is not interested in breaking even, but in breaking ground. Love is ever searching for new fields to plant, new places to deposit its treasures. Love is not a cheap thing. Don't try to love on the cheap. Love is a costly thing. It's worth paying for. I'm going to give you an example of this from David's reign. Near the end of his reign, he came to Jerusalem And the angel of the Lord was smiting the city with a plague as David and his men rode in. Smiting the city with a plague. Why was God smiting his own people with a plague? Because their leader had sinned greatly. Right? This isn't the Bathsheba thing. This is another thing. David was quite a sinner. 
So David comes in and he sees his people being plagued and cursed by God for his decisions. I have always said nations suffer the wrath of God because of the decisions of their leaders. That's how God punishes nations, because nations really don't have a soul. We always think, oh, it, the soul of America. America doesn't really have a soul. And if it does, it's, it's the church. But he's punishing the people for the sins of the king. So David goes to the Lord. Surely I have sinned and I've done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Knowing full well the extent of God's wrath, he prayed it to come upon himself. Though he was a sinner, that was quite a Christ-like act. He pleaded for God, leave the people alone. It was my sin that brought on your wrath. David traveled around with an army, but he also had a personal prophet with him. You know, sort of in his pocket to find out what he didn't know. And so he called his prophet Gad and instructed him to construct an altar on the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite. This guy Arana was a Jebusite. He lived near Jerusalem, and he had a great farm, and it seems was probably quite a, a wealthy person. And uh, he wanted to honor his king. And so Arana honored the king by offering the threshing floor as a gift and the threshing instruments and the yokes, you know, all the wood and leather and all this stuff. And he said, use these to, to ignite the fire to burn the sacrifice. I give them to you because you want to make an offering to God to assuage his wrath and I want to be part of it. And what did David say to him? Very famously. Then the king said to Arana, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price because I will not give to the Lord of that which costs me nothing. He'd rather buy it and burn it. <laughs> and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers of the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. So, friends, the sins of the leadership become the sins of the nation. But notice also, the prayers of the leadership become the blessing of the nation. If only our leaders, instead of caring about winning the next silly election, they just cared about people and prayed for them. What an awesome thing that would be. There would be a whole contingent over here laughing at them, but God wouldn't be laughing at them. Never love on the cheap. It is the greatest of gifts. It comes at the greatest of costs, even the blood of Christ. God didn't love on the cheap. He gave the best he had. He gave the best in existence. I've always hated this American penchant for convenience. We won't go anywhere or do anything if it's not on the way. Everybody chip in for gas. <laughs> you can just do something for once that costs you a little bit. We worship on the fly. We love on the cheap. Maybe we can fit in our offering between worldly events. Got a lot of stuff going on. I'll fit in a little worship here. Park near the entrance so we can get out early. You know, we used to, when we were... Young Catholics, we used to actually do that. You park near the entrance. The service isn't over after communion, but for me it was. <laughs> you'd leave, and you'd walk, you'd walk, and you'd keep on walking, and you were done. <laughs> Car's right in the front. Nobody has to move. No double parking. You're off on your way. We sit near the door. We squeeze in a little offering to God. After all, we have busy lives, and surely the Lord will understand. We even pray on the fly. Sometimes wonder what would happen if we went into our prayer closet and told the Lord, I'm not leaving until you show up. I sometimes wonder what would happen if we did that and meant it. Might never see you again, but might see you with a golden robe around you. Radiance, who knows? 
And so Paul goes from this love thing, from telling us that love is the greatest thing, to all the little parts of sanctification. What's sanctification? It's the process of holiness. And so he begins with love, but he develops this whole process of sanctification. So what is the apostle positing in this? By the way, a most poetic passage, is it not? I'm going to get into that. He's calling for sanctification, and sanctification is holiness, right? Friends, if the gospel was preached correctly, you would, we wouldn't hear so much about happiness. We would hear a lot more about holiness. They seem to be in contention today. As though if we make a commitment to Christ, our earthly troubles disappear. They don't. In fact, they can get worse. They can get a lot worse. They did in Jerusalem after the Pentecost, when all of a sudden people were ostracized from their families and thrown out of the synagogue for receiving Christ. And they suddenly had to become this little commune for a while and give all their stuff to take care of everybody, remember? They lost everything for choosing Christ. The Christians for the first few centuries knew it wasn't about their personal happiness, at least not in the here and now and in the moment. And when we focus on holiness more, it gives us a better perspective of what we're actually saving, our soul, not just our body. Fear not him who can kill the body. Jesus says blithely, oh, I don't have to worry about being killed. I mean, no one wants to be, but there's a greater problem than that. One of my old westerns that I like so much, it was, uh, I think it was Kevin Costner, who said, you know, you may not know this, but there's things that nod a man worse than death. <laughs> he said, I don't know what he was talking about, but I know what he should have been talking about. There are things that gnaw at a man worse than death. Eternal life apart from God, that, that should gnaw. That's why we, cut, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because it's like, what if we weren't saved? Of course, the world has a remedy for that. They they don't think about it. They don't talk about it. And they're offended if you do. So he's calling for sanctification, which is holiness. And for the balance of the epistle, the apostle would teach on specific instances of properly loving one another, respecting the concerns of one another. That's why he begins in chapter 14, receive one who is weak in the faith. But don't trouble them over doubtful things just because you're more holy and want to show it. So we have the doctrine of salvation. We're clear on it. First several chapters, very clear. We have the teaching of assurance. Oh, friends, we have chapters 8, 9, and 10 on assurance. The assurance of our salvation, that's almost as great a gift as our salvation. Remember I said we love good news, it makes us feel good? Knowing we're saved is so much better than being saved and not really knowing. Isn't it? We're grateful that God showed his love toward us and that Christ was sacrificed for us. I mean, how could you even look at Christ and not see the precious sacrifice that God made for us? For sinners, for people who were estranged to him, who couldn't even come into his presence because they would burn up. Sin burns up in the face of God. But not when you're wearing the armor of light, right? We're grateful that God showed his love toward us and that Christ was sacrificed for us, but now it's time to act the part of the child of God. Now is the moment of realizing the truest extent of our salvation. It's time to awake out of our slumber. How many scriptures talk about that? It's in Ephesians, it's here. Awake out of your slumber, arise from your sleep, play the part of the reconciled sinner before a holy God. You're not just rejoicing because you're all set now. You're rejoicing because you're a soldier in the army of God and there's work to do. And the work is summed up in the word, sanctification. We're progressively becoming holier 
through our knowledge, through our love, through the spiritual disciplines of prayer and worship. Prayer and worship make you a better, more solid Christian. So in verse 11, he says, and do this. Okay, so there's an application. And do this. Other places, he says, know this. And that'll prepare you later to do this. Right? So do this, knowing the time. (laughs) You know, the apostle's concerned with time. Redeem the time for the days of evil. You know what I mean? He knows all we really have in life. We think we have all these things. Really, all we have is time. And it is fleeting. And he says that now it's high time to awake out of your sleep. Now, he says. And now means now, now. And it meant now then. Whenever you read this, it means now. Right? It's a pretty cool word. (laughs) Now, our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. I'm like, no kidding. You could say that at any point in time. Of course it's nearer. But what he's doing is he's giving us the urgency about it. You're getting closer. Do something with your salvation. You want to just get there and be recognized before God and the angels? Yeah, I came in. I got myself saved. What'd you do? Nothing. (laughs) Do this, the apostle says. Do what? Fulfill the law of love toward one another. Do it soon. Do it now, he says. And if you read this far in the epistle, you've believed and been apprised of the doctrines of our faith, then it's time to be known for who you have become. Right? Jesus said it this way. You are the light of the world. Do you ever think of yourself that way? Well, maybe we should. You walk into a room of unbelievers, Thanksgiving Day, right? You're the light. You're the one that has a connection with God. You're the one that has a word from God that they don't have. And a city is set a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. In other words, it doesn't say will not or you shouldn't let it be. It says cannot. You're the light and they know it. And they're just waiting for you to say something that they don't want you to say. But they know you're the light. You come with the light of truth. Light is usually refers to truth in the scriptures. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the what? In the house. (laughs) In the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Let your light shine. Let them see your good works. No, you're not parading it. People get all hung up on this stuff. Oh, I want to give this gift, but I don't want anybody to know. My left hand can't know what the right hand's doing. I think it's a blessing to know who cared for us. Unless you instruct me otherwise, I don't hide that fact. I think it's a good thing to let your light so shine that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven and know that they're loved. And he says, knowing the time. Now, that's Paul's way of putting an urgency about our witness. Knowing the time. In other words, time marches on. Not that God's at his wit's end, right? Or he finds himself in a bind. Jeez, I hope the saints will bail me out. hope they make my prophecy come true. (laughs) No, it's not like that's where he is. Paul puts that in there because we have to know that life is short and fleeting. You know, we don't find out, like really, as a witness, that life is short until we're like in our 60s and we're like, that was fast. You know? I found a book on my shelf that I borrowed from a fellow Christian 30 years ago. (laughs) I thought, I really should give this back to him. (laughs) (laughs) Had him over for dinner, I don't know, last year or something. I I didn't think of it. I wish I did. That would have been funny. But one day I'll, I'll return it to him. You want to know who it is? Yeah, I'm not going to tell you who it is. But um, it's going to be funny when I say, do you realize when I borrowed this out of your office, it was, it was 30 years ago? So whatever fines I owe, just charge them to the church. I work for the church. Life is short and it's fleeting. The night is far spent. What's the night? Well, I look at the night 
of my life is the time I spent without Christ, and the day is the time I spent in Christ. The night's far spent, so that's gone. You don't work and live in that anymore. You are the light of the world, right? said the same thing to the, to the Ephesians. You are the light. You were the darkness, but now you're the light. We talked about that to death on Thursday evening. Your life apart from Christ is the dark night of your soul, but that's behind you. Now you're in the light, and you are light in and of yourself. Oh, here it is in the, in the notes. For you were once darkness, but now you are in the light, in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And of course, walk means live and go about your life. It's called a walk. He goes on to develop the theme of discipleship, saying that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Have no fellowship with them, but expose them. Call a thing a thing. Right? Now, as you go into the passage, don't miss what I'm going to call the development clause in the verse. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, there's a process going on. Our Christian lives are in a developmental stage. We've moved on in our Christian life. In other words, time marches on. You were saved. You were taught. You were led along the path of knowledge and understanding. It could always be said that our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The word salvation here, though, is talking about the culmination, the manifestation of our salvation. People can't look at you right now and think, boy, he's saved. You know, you're walking around Home Depot, they don't go, geez, look at him. He's saved. No, they don't know that yet. The people that know you know there's something different about you. You know, they, my friends ask me to, we, we get together, the ones who are not hostile and want to make a show, even though I know they, they have no relationship with Christ, they want to make a show of Thanksgiving, which is a start, right? They ask me to pray, because I'm the professional prayer. Right? So you had all these things. You were saved, you were taught, you were led along the path of righteousness. And you're getting nearer to the fulfillment of your salvation, the manifestation of it, the realization, the glorification of it. Right? You're getting nearer. The final episode of salvation, when it comes, be nice to have a little trail of accomplishments behind you. Right? And so we can see the progress of time. And so Paul urges that what we become tomorrow will be a greater witness of Christ than what we are today. What's wrong with that? That's a good thing, right? This is why he's got the next couple of chapters. He's going to tell us in the church how to be a good church toward one another. And he brings up very human situations, very practical daily human situations. And he sort of nitpicks a little about how to deal with things. In chapter 14, you know, he talks about the weaker brother, the stronger brother. You know, the stronger brothers also have weaknesses, and the the weaker brother has weaknesses, but he has certain strengths as well. Um, So Paul urges that what we are today will be a greater witness of Christ than what we will be tomorrow. And we read about this very thing, the book of Hebrews, where we read from uh, chapter 6, where the writer says, but beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. He's not saying you're not believers. He's calling you beloved. That means brethren, saints, right? We're confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. For God is not unjust unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. It's not the end yet, so you're in this developmental walk with God. You're trying to get things right, consciously. It's fine for you to question yourself about how you treated a brother or handled a situation. You should go back to Romans 13 and 14 and say, I wonder if I handled that right in Christ. 
So he says, we desire that each one of you should show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. We're on a course. Now we said last week that Paul's message to the church is that our sanctification wasn't automatic, right? It's not automatic. Showing love to a brother doesn't just happen because you have the Holy Spirit. You have to do it. There's some things you have to do. Salvation, in a sense, was automatic, right? It happened to us. We didn't cause salvation. It was a gift. It required no effort on your part. In fact, your effort would have poisoned it. (laughs) It was entirely accomplished by God through the sacrifice of Christ for our sins. It wasn't my idea. I know. I have sinned. Why don't you sacrifice your son for me? Who would have ever thought of such a thing? That's what's called grace. It's a magnificent offering. It was done for you. You didn't cause it in any way. But now, we are the gracious recipients of all that was promised from of old with regard to man's relationship with the divine. We have been washed by blood and received by faith. Remember in Romans, faith is our access. Washed by blood, accessed by faith, And so our knowledge has grounded us in Christ. But our lives, our actions, our desires are not so well grounded as our minds and our knowledge and our understanding. Just knowing, just having the proper orthodoxy (laughs) doesn't make you a great Christian. It can make you a really bad Christian. It can make you a Pharisee or a rich young ruler. I've done these and more all my life. (laughs) Imagine saying that to the Lord. Um... And so another step in the chain of spiritual development is needed. We must never believe that our orthodoxy saves us. You know, Lloyd-Jones talks about a guy. He doesn't name him. He gives an example of a really smart Christian man who had all the right reformed doctrines and could spout them off and quote the scriptures. And And he usually did it while he was drunk in a bar. Which, of course, if he really took the time to understand anything about what we're talking about, he wouldn't have been doing that. And if he was there to save the other old drunks in the bar, he himself wouldn't be drunk. Right? Old things passed away. So, knowing things is essential. I never say it's not essential. People today say, oh, no, it's not knowing. It's all about the witness of the Spirit. Now, growth comes through knowledge. Even love is enhanced by knowledge. Right? I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge, Paul said. Love learns. It's like an artificial intelligence. It learns on its own. Love learns how to be a better witness of love. And this knowing truth is good. It's essential to spiritual maturity, but it can never become the resting place for our souls. And I say this to reformers because we love just knowing, being right and knowing that we're right. We're not merely intellectual beings, although I don't decry the intellectual side of the Christian. I think it's essential to have an understanding. You can't pass down the faith without an understanding of what the faith is. And that's why the great commandment of Christ is that we love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, with all our strength, and with all our might. There are other things besides our mind that we love God with, right? Our salvation is a complete renovator of our being. New wine must never be placed in old wineskins. You know the parable, right? Lest the old ones burst and the wine spill out. In other words, we're not rehabbed, we're remade. We've not been patched together by old things. We're not a patchwork, right? Old things have passed away. We're not repaired creatures, we are new creatures. There has been a rebirth, and so death had to occur first. There's a death that happens in the believer. Respect it. So he said to the Romans in chapter 6, Therefore we were buried with him. We have to bury some of our old lives, our old desires, our old thoughts, the things that led us to sin. Make no provision for the flesh. They were buried with him through baptism into death. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if, if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified. He was violently put to death, your old man, with Christ. Your old fleshy part of your being was put to death when you believed with Christ as though it too was nailed to the cross. That the body of sin might be done away with, that you should no longer be slaves of sin. Let me tell you something. There are great temptations in the world, and I don't make light of them, but they have no power over you. Yes, they sometimes hard to turn away, but that's because you still desire them. They have no power over you. They're dead to you. You're a new creature. You're created in Christ Jesus for good works, not for old works, not for dead works, sinful things. For he who has died has been freed from sin, Paul writes. Romans 6, 7. But now all this glorious knowledge is known and received, but it's not knowledge that saved us after all, isn't it? You know, it isn't your knowledge that saved you. It isn't your faith that saved you. It was Christ that saved you. It's not knowledge that reveals us. Our actions do that quite well. What a hypocrite. All you got to do is the wrong thing. And someone that knows you're a Christian is ready to pounce, right? Oh, you're a Christian? You ever get that? I've gotten it. But whenever I got it, it's not called for. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What an awesome thought, armor of light. It's like, I, I, I'll tell you how I picture it, all right? You want to know the inner workings? It's like on that chair there's this coat of mail. You know what mail is? It's that metal weaved stuff that puts on that you can't stick a spear through. But it emanates a light of its own. The celestial radiance comes out of it. And it looks like it should be burning hot, but you put it on and it's cool. Right? And you button it up and you're impervious to attack. The armor of light. And guess what? I think that's exactly what it is. And I'll show you that in the scriptures. But I, I should say, I want you to know, there's a historical reference to this verse that I think's important for us to know. There was a great theologian in the 4th century, died in 430 A.D. His name was Augustine, St. Augustine of Hippo. He did some writing, did an awful lot of writing. His famous um, book was The City of God, right? But he also wrote a book called Confessions. And it reads like, if, you, if I didn't tell you it was 4th century, you would think some college kid today was writing about his conversion. And he was messing around with women and messing around with drink and doing all the things that sinners do, right? And his mother, Monica, of course, was, was a Christian. His father wasn't, apparently. And she witnessed to him, witnessed to him. So he grew up, you know, uh, guilty, knowing he was doing the wrong things. He loved his mother, was obviously a good woman. And she prayed for him, prayed for him, prayed for him. And he studied everything. He studied philosophy. He was a great man of, of Carthage in North Africa, right? And... Uh, was a great society. They had libraries. You know, we mustn't think of uh, all of these ancient societies as, as um, you know, Neanderthals, knuckle-dragon, you know, hair-laden apes. No, these, are, these were beautiful societies with great architecture and art and philosophy. And he was a, a scholar of all these things. And he finally did come to Christ after a lot of arguments with people and discussions, right? And he could think on many levels. But he just couldn't put away his old sin, and he was a womanizer. Augustine was a womanizer. There's a famous passage in the book where this woman comes out to him, Augie! <laughs> I don't know if they called him Augie. Karen has an uncle, Augie, who's Augustine. But um, Augie, it is I, <laughs> the prostitute says. And he said, it is no longer I. No, he had to come around. He had the knowledge, but he, he couldn't make it work in his life. He still loved his old sin too much. And there's the story, he's in the garden one day, right? You know, he's one of those houses that has a beautiful garden outside. And uh, 
he hears a child singing from the other yard over, beyond the lattice or the, or the hedge or whatever. And she's singing tole lege, which means take up and read. You heard the story? Take up and read. Take up and read. It was part of a, apparently a, a Latin song of the day. They spoke Latin by this time, right? And um, as the story goes, the great Bishop of Hippo lifted up the scriptures. I mean, what else would he read, right? And the whole tragedy of his hypocrisy came down around him. And in a moment of time, he felt himself transported and fulfilled. And the reading of this verse became the turning point in the life that urged him on to become a great witness before God and man, before Caesars and bishops, before councils and kings. And he became the great Augustine, right? And he fought off the great heresy of Pelagius, Pelagianism, which today we call Arminianism, right? Yeah, um, Augustine was a Calvinist 1,100 years before Calvin even lived. Um, So he wasn't a Calvinist. He was a Paulinist. He agreed with Paul. And the tradition of the sovereignty of God went through men like Augustine. But he was converted by hearing this verse and the prompting of the, of the little girl's song, the night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And it hit him like a thunderbolt, very quiet thunderbolt. It's not what we know that rightly reveals us. He probably knew more doctrine at that time than, than we did. Although I want to tell you, just as a, as a point about Augustine, the Catholic Church embraces Augustine too. And... Um, when you study certain people's lives, they learn things as they go through life. And some of their early life, you're like, boy, that wasn't right. You know? Um, same with Luther. Who, by the way, Luther was saved by the book of Romans as well. Um, Romans 1.17. Um, the just shall live by faith. That was Luther's thunderbolt. The just shall live by faith. It dawned on him, all this stuff I'm doing is not going to get rid of sin. It's faith that's access to God. So Romans is a, is a potent book. So Augustine had great knowledge and yet could not conscientiously say that he had crossed over from darkness to light until this moment. He still held on to former darkness, unwilling to give it all for the love of Christ and the church. He loved the church. Augustine is famous for saying, "God is our, he who has God as father must have the church as his mother. Now it's not a doctrine, it's an example. It's an illustration, but it makes sense, Right? The church is important. It's not an afterthought to God. Oh, yeah, I got saved. I came down at the, uh, you know, at the crusade the other day. I came down and uh, you know, gave my life to Christ. And Yeah, I might think about going to church someday. No, it's not like that. It shouldn't even be presented like that. You're baptized into the communion of God's people now. Your whole life has changed. Don't make plans for Sunday anymore. Until that moment when this verse became for him the hinge of history in his own life. It's not what we know that defines us, friends. It's what we do. Knowing is inward and reveals little about us. How is That's light. That's the exact example of light being hid under a basket. Knowing and not doing. It's in here, but I'll not act on it. Doing is outward and makes the grand statement of who we are and what we believe. Our salvation is manifested in works. Love is known by the actions that it prompts, and so is faith. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. The great challenge of James, right? So I've always told you, friends, that salvation is free. It's discipleship that can cost you. It's sanctification that can start costing It can cost you everything you have. Give up everything you have and come follow me. Discipleship is costly. Christ paid his and now you got to pay yours. Remember, Christ is not sinning. Or rather, Christ not sinning is keeping the law, right? But Christ dying for the sins of others is fulfilling the law. You see how that works? Him not sinning may or may not say anything about his love. But dying on the cross says it all. It's the act that reveals who he is. 
Professing Christ respects the gospel. Taking up your cross and following after him fulfills the gospel. Paul wrote of it to the Galatians in precisely this way when he said, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But I, as I said, I'm quite taken with this phrase, the armor of light. It's really an awesome image. It's as if your love clothes you with a garment of light. And it's impervious. You're wrapped about with a shining drapery, a cloak of light. And so the reference to light gives us the impression of that, right? But what about the reference to armor? It's as if your love makes you impervious to attack by dark forces. Scripture is replete with similar references. Friends, love covers a multitude of sin. It protects us. Dark things don't want to come near it. It's as as if love is like what Peter said of truth. He said, it's a light that shines in a dark place. He goes on to speak of the morning star rising in your heart. The morning star, as though the cosmos revolves around the Christ-centered heart. The sun rises and sets on your heart. It's an awesome image. The sun rises and sets on the love of Christ in the Christian heart. Paul to the Ephesians spoke of the armor of God, right? This is like that, but it's, it's not the same. I always note that the armor, remember this, the armor is the thing that you what? Have to put on. It's not automatic. The Holy Spirit isn't your squire. He's not holding up the armor, dressing you like Don Quixote's Sancho Panza, you know. It's it's not like that. So the automatic element is not here. This is a thing you put on. It takes effort. It takes a decision. It takes counting the cost. Yet even there, the armor of God is seen, you know, in, in, in Ephesians 6, the armor of God is, I think of it as polished bronze, Right? Or the breastplate could have been a burnished leather Roman breastplate. You know? It always made you look like you had a six pack. Right? But here in this reference, the armor of light becomes its own image. It's as if the armor is energized with a celestial radiance all its own. It's as if the very garment of Christ. Is on you. Consider what the psalmist said about this thing. Oh Lord my God, you, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty, who cover yourself with light as with a garment. There it is. Cover yourself with light as with a garment. You get up and you put on cotton and polyester, and the Lord gets on and puts on light. Right? And it ain't L-I-T-E light. Who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, and then he adds this for us, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. In other words, the fire and the light's available to you. The minister's a flame of fire. Love comes with its own radiance. Love is the garment, friends, that truth puts on. Truth can be in their hiding. Love can't hide. Truth stands on its own. Never doubt that. But love clothes the naked truth with the warm glow of spiritual life, surging, pulsing in the breast of the believer. It's the living believer love. Your Christ-like love may take you further than your dearly held beliefs ever did. But never imagine that they can be separated. Don't do that. They are one. Just as love and law are one, love and truth are one and the same. Truth is the inner kernel of love, and love is the impenetrable outer shell of living truth. It's the armor. Right? It's the taking of the end of the spear, giving or laying down your life for for your fellow man. That's love. It absorbs the spear intended for someone else. It's the quenching of the fiery dart of the wicked one, which Paul says the shield of faith does. 
Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day. You got, you got your armor of light on. So where are you going to go? <laughs> walk properly as in the day. Not in revelry and drunkenness. Not in lewdness and lust. Lust. Not in strife and envy. These things are not part of us anymore. I'm going to tell you, envy is the sin of the, the, the hour. Envy is difficult. People envy and it destroys them. And what it is, is it's, it's such a part of pride. It's such a part of why did he get that and not me type of thinking. That will eat you away and destroy you. That has to go. Strife, right? Unnecessary tension. Lewdness, lust. You think here of sexual things primarily. The Bible's very concerned with our, our chastity, our sexual deportment. That's why it's, it's sad to me today that fornication is in style in the church. And so let me make one last connection with regard to our sanctification, with regard to love in action. And that is the postmodern, that's now, obsession with happiness. You know, I don't like to, con- to critique men that are wiser than me and better than me and have done, have way more accomplishments than me. And I love Franklin Graham. And we've given to his ministry. Um, and he does so much. I mean, Samaritan's Purse is an incredible thing. If you've ever seen it, they're real hospitals with ventilation and, um, you know, lighting and uh, operating rooms and surgical staff. So much that he does for people. He's all over the world. And because love to him is something worth spending on, he's put out some commercials. He's on commercials now on cable. And I love that Franklin does that. And I don't like to critique in the way of nitpicking a gospel message. His latest one is about a bucket of hope and how Christ, you know, receiving Christ gives you that. And it's short. These are expensive, you know, presentations when you make a 15 or 30 second cable ad. And I'm glad that he does it. I'm glad he gives a number to call and people can call in. And I hope people call in in this day of hopelessness and helplessness. But this idea that you choose Christ and your problems go away, I think that's an unfortunate representation of what the gospel is because your problems do not go away. They may multiply. In this world, you'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, there's plenty of references from Christ to that effect, right? Talks about giving your life. The the gospel is about taking away your sin. And, And as soon as you think happiness, you've forgotten about holiness, you see what I mean? You don't come to Christ because you're unhappy. You come because you're unholy, and you've seen it. You see the difference? If not, I'll labor over it a bit. Even our founding documents speak of the pursuit of happiness, not a word of holiness. I'm wearied by the current preoccupation of gospel preachers with happiness. Our Savior was a man of sorrows. To preach his gospel is the way to true happiness misses the point of the cross. Now, I'm not saying that isn't a blessed side effect. I hope that it is. I consider myself a very happy person. And I don't know if I would be that without the daily blessings of God and answers to prayer. But I come to the Lord because my soul is dying. You know? Not because I didn't get the promotion I deserved at work. Or people say things about me. Or I have, you know, student debt that's getting me down. This isn't why we come to Christ. And I think the church has been preoccupied with this and we borrowed it from the cults. Because the cults dangle happiness out there like, do this and you'll be happy like us. Our Savior was a man of sorrows. God did not spread his arms on the cross because you were sad. 
He did it to make us holy. The great hymns have it right. It's about holiness. And if happiness is the byproduct of holiness, then I'm okay with that. And I think it is, and it should be. We talk of joy, right? But I don't tell people to come to Christ because it'll make you happy like me. If happiness is the joy of knowing that we're no longer an offense to God, then I'm quite content to seek that kind of happiness. But this is about sanctification. This is about growing up in Christ and looking at yourself, looking at why Christ had to die for you. And it wasn't because someone didn't send you a birthday card or something. (laughs) To preach... That the Christian faith is the cure for what ails you misses the whole point of facing our sin. Happiness for the man on the street is the thing he deserves. And don't worry, Jesus will give that to you. To speak of deserving a thing is to miss the nature of sinful man. Once you're talking about deserving, the, the gospel's lost to you until you come around. Happiness is... In the modern pulpit is the whole point of professing Christ. And I I must say that religion that dangles happiness in front of people cannot be the religion of the New Testament. I could be content with a simple change of order, I suppose. We could merely put holiness first. I've always said that happiness cannot produce holiness. Agreed? I think that's obvious. A lot of happy people out there. Why, I don't know. They're not thinking past the moment. Right? But holiness can produce happiness, and it's a stable, sweet joy. It might be quiet. It might not be a blow-out-the-candles type of happiness. If you put a premium on happiness, then you've denied the whole intent of the cross. Jesus didn't die on the cross to improve your situation at work. He didn't die to get you out of financial debt. There were whole denominations that preached that that's why he died. How do we get there? I'll never forget, I came in through the charismatic door and I heard an old preacher, Tal McNutt, some of you old people remember him, I know Billy does, we've talked about it, and he was a fill-in in the old days for Pastor Ken, and he came one day and he was preaching and he was impressive. And I said to him, you know, what do you think of the, the charismatics? And he said... Jesus did not die on that cross so that I can drive a Mercedes. That was like tolo lege to me. That was like Augustine seeing the light. Of course, it's so simple. Of course he didn't die for that. He died because I'm a wicked sinner with a sin-stained, corrosive soul that's dying before God and can't even come into the presence of God and can't even rightly pray and ask God for something. So he died so they could have that access. Does that make me happy? It does. But he died to make me holy. Let us walk properly as in the day. That doesn't mean with a big smile on your face. I'm sorry, I reject that. That's, it's holiness he's talking about. And if the same old sins, the same old revelry, the same old drunkenness still makes you happy, you should question the authenticity of your faith. The old things that he mentions shouldn't be making you happy. And you can say, boy, I put those things away, but I'm not happy about it. You're holy. (laughs) It's the first step. (laughs) You know, I had a brother in in Christ who was in AA. By the way, I, I just want you to know, I don't recommend AA for Christians. I think it's wrong for Christians. I don't think we cope with sin. I think we do away with it and we're done. Not steps. It's repentance. But I accept that people use different things, and so I'm okay with it. He said, you know, I've been clean for a while. He goes, boy, the joy is gone. I said, it'll come back. I think it was a year later he came to me. You know, you told me the joy had come back, and it's back. And I'm clean, and it's still back. See what I mean? (laughs) Tearing away things you love, sinful things from yourself, isn't going to have the immediate, like, oh, I'm so happy now. (laughs) Pornography's gone. (laughs) That was good. No, it, it takes some healing. There's a death. It's about holiness, friends. It's always about holiness. The gospel is about holiness in the first place. Happiness may be a byproduct of it, but it can never be the chief end of man. It's holiness. Died to make you holy so he could present you 
before God. I don't think anyone, I, don't th- I think Christians that think they're going to stand before Christ at the last day, all happy to see him, I think we're going to cringe and say, are you sure I'm in? I don't think we're going to be like, oh, well done, good and faithful. No, I think we're going to look at the fire from the loins up and the fire from the loins down and wonder who ushered us in this place with this incredible, fiery being. And we're not going to skip in there. Happiness will eventually be the byproduct of holiness, but it can never be the chief thing. The born-again spirit of the believer rejoices in his new life and puts a great distance between his new virtues and his old vices, and eventually the joy comes back. That's why Paul urges us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And I'll close with the psalmist who said the same, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Amen. Father, let these words sink down into our souls and bring us along the path of sanctification into your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.